what it did do was bring out consistency. And that's that's one of the key things, especially is that if you're going into one store in London or one of our stores in Birmingham or Sheffield, the way the process was identical. You know, there was no deviation and that was non-negotiable from a training perspective. You know, this is the way we do it. And it was our, our, our USP, our protocol. fascinating are the characteristics behind many different brands. Some of them are outgoing and energetic, some are a little bit more laid back. So in this podcast, we look to explore all the different characteristics, not only of the brand itself, its roots, its origins, but the people behind the brand. And is there a bit of a relationship between the characters of the people and the characters of the brand? Well, hey there, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Legends of the Brand. And this episode is going to be slightly longer than usual, but it's for good reason. So one of the people that I had the honor to meet and spend time with, and most importantly, to work with, was Dion Taylor. Now, Dion came from New Zealand in 1985 and worked his way up from the shop floor all the way to the highest levels of the company. And in his 27 odd years within the company, he's seen a lot, skied a lot, met a lot of fantastic people. And in this episode here, he takes us a little bit behind the scenes of his story and the story of Snow and Rock. Now, when I started this podcast, I have to admit, he was one of the characters that I sincerely wanted to make sure we had on the podcast because those people that know, Dion brings an effervescent passion to life, to the snowsport industry, and he's a great person to spend time around. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode of Legends of the Brand. Take care and on with the show. Well, good afternoon, good morning, and welcome wherever you are. Welcome to Legends of the Brand. And this week, I have the honor of speaking with Dion Taylor, who uh, had the you know, honor of, of working with many, many years uh, at, uh, at Snow and Rock. So welcome aboard, Dion. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, Phil. Yeah, good afternoon. <laughs> so, um, I mean, obviously, we know you from, from the snow sport industry, and uh, obviously, you're, you're uh, from the other side of the world, uh, uh, Kiwi uh, from New Zealand. But um, how, did you, how did you get involved with, with all of this, and, and, and how did you end up on the side of the pond skiing in, in, in retail? So, I guess the first point is um, I started skiing. I was kind of late in starting. I started skiing when I was about 17. Very keen rugby player, uh, sadly had a number of head injuries or concussions and on the suggestion of my doctor said you need to find another sport, um, otherwise you're not going to remember anything. So I started skiing um, and I lived in a place called Nelson, which is in the top of the South Island, um, and there was a small ski field called Mount Robert, which was about an hour and a half's drive on a gravel road from Nelson, so lovely spot. And a friend of mine said, look, I'm going up skiing. Um, would you like to come? And uh, he said, yeah, let's, I said, yeah, let's go. So we went up and he said, I'll bring a backpack with you because it's a bit of a walk. And I said, oh, okay. We arrived at the foot of what I thought was a mountain. And he said, he said, we've got a 10K walk to get to the, to the ski field. So that was, that was interesting. That was my first experience. So it was a, in New Zealand, we call it tramping over here. They call it hiking or ram, hiking or rambling. Um, so an hour and a half or so took us to get to the ski field and that's where we learned to ski and it was all rope toes um so not only learning to ski um was a challenge uh, no piece piece grooming or anything like that it was all 
you know, it was the natural terrain. Um, and so you had to learn to ski, but also learn how to use a rope toe. So that was also quite challenging. So that was kind of where my passion for snow sports started. <laughs> you mentioned using a rope toe. I remember my, my first experience using a rope toe. I think I went through a, a pair of gloves, like a, a pair of mittens. It, it was just, you just holding on, I wasn't too sure how it just all came apart in my hand. But yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, it's kind of fun doing that. And, and so obviously you were, were uh, uh, learning there and then um, you went to college or university or how did, how did that all transpire? So I finished, finished school normal, sort of 18, 18 years old. Um, and a lot of my friends, um, contemporaries were all going to, going to university. And I just decided I was, I wanted to see the world. So I, I went traveling, uh, for, for a couple of years, traveled around the world, um, and skied in loads of different places. Um, and even spent a season working, um, in Mammoth Mountain, California, in a ski shop. So that was my first experience of retail. And in doing that there, there was, uh, I mean, I guess you're probably bitten by the bug in terms of, of not only seeing the big mountains and, and uh, was it the, uh, did you ski every day and work in the evenings or how did that work when you're working in retail? And that so day? we had a good boss, which was great. So on a powder day, we all went skiing, which was great. <laughs> and that season there was lots of snow. Um, yeah. So we kind of worked split shifts. I mean, the store was open kind of 10 to 10 sort of thing. So we would, we would work split shifts and I'd, skied, I'd probably skied three or four days a week. So it was, um, you know, we got a lot of skiing and a lot of mileage. So that was brilliant. Awesome. And uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, Mammoth Mountain is obviously a fantastic resort. Um, if, it was, if it was a day off, uh, a perfect day, what would you, what would you want to go ski? Well, back in back in back in the day in the early '80s, a short pair of skis was probably two meters. So everyone was skiing two seven, two tens, you know, and they were they didn't have any shape to them. They were straight. So you you know if you didn't turn, you picked up quite a lot of speed. Um, you know, a lot of the guys back in those days would ski on downhill skis as well. So two twenty threes. I mean, it was crazy. Um, but the, I, the, the great day skiing was also to go ski powder, ski the trees, um, and a lot harder on those short, skinny, straight skis. But that was my first real experience of skiing powder and found the love for it, really. So I guess best day out, you know, back then was going to ski powder with some of your mates. Oh, and uh, if you had a best day now, what would it be? What would, what, if you could uh, snap your fingers and have a best day ever, perfect day, what would you do? So... It's once again, I guess the one thing about or one of the great things about skiing is you can have a, a great day with a bunch of people, no matter what the conditions or, you know, what the terrain, but ultimately ideal great day is fresh untracked powder, powder, bit of back, back country, of course, mm -hmm. you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half touring to get to the, to the spot and, and ski fresh untracked powder. And, you know, I think everyone's had those days which you count. I mean, I've had lots of powder skiing, but I've probably got three or four days sort of in my memory um, of, of, you know, the, the best days skiing of my life. And it's, you know, I've skied for the last, you know, 35 odd years. This, this year, because of COVID, it's the first year I haven't skied um, since I was 17. So kind of strange. So, I, but everyone has those days, don't they, that you remember for life. And I've got, I've got three or four, I've got loads, but I've got three or four magical days. Oh, really? I mean, at some point I might have to ask you about some of those in detail. Um, 
so obviously you had the chance to to work in Mammoth Mountain and uh, then did you keep on traveling from from there to to the UK or did you head back home and then and yeah, so so after my time in Mammoth, I went. I did a little bit of time in um, sort of Central America, and then I went, um, came to the UK, uh, do what all Kiwis do. Worked at a pub for a while. Um, I went on a coach trip out to uh, Kitzbühel, went skiing there. So had a couple of ski trips, and then um, came back to New Zealand with the mm-hmm. thought of um, going to university to study business. <laughs> Well, I think I think uh, um, I think from past conversation, did you said uh, one of your one of your friends was John was in London working already? Wasn't invited you over or something like that? Or so what happened was I I went to university in the central part of New Zealand called Palmerston North on the North Island, so sort mm-hmm. of sort of lower lower south of the North Island um, to do a business degree at a place called Massey University. I also got a part time job, of course, in a in, a, in the local ski shop because Mount Ruapehu was in the central of North Island, was about two hours drive, two, two and a half hours drive away. So the plan was to go to uni, work in the ski shop and go skiing, which we obviously did. And John John Carmichael was a friend of the owner of the ski shop um, who I met. Um, and he was back in uh, back in New Zealand uh, for, a, for a period. He'd, he'd spent quite a bit of time between Europe and um and the and new zealand um but he he was coming back he'd been offered a job as the manager of the new trocadero uh ski shop snow rock ski shop um in piccadilly and he he said to me after he met me and we'd been skiing a couple of times and he said oh do you want to come to london and i said yeah that sounds great actually i was you know i was loving being back in new zealand but i wasn't enjoying the uni life and this whole idea of coming back to Europe and, and working in retail and, and London just really attracted me. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, so uh, you came over to the UK and, um, and then I guess you uh, got st- stuck in. I mean, at, at that stage, uh, I guess Stone Rock had what, two or three stores, was it? Uh, from your record? Is that about right? So, tro- so I, I came to the UK in October 1985. So mm-hmm. the Trocadero had opened at the end of September. Um, so it had only been open a couple of weeks and that was the third store obviously the first store was Kensington High Street Mm -hmm. Um, the second store was Birmingham and then the third was um, the Trocadero so um, yeah hey presto I'm I'm working in London Um, started work as soon as I arrived uh, and we're open seven days a week so it was a you know long old 10 10 to 10 seven days a week uh, but that's where you kind of um, you took some of the skills. I guess you'd learned a few of the ski shops and and applied them to to the truck there to when you're at, at Snow and Rock there. And it was uh, boot fitting, ski mounting, all the kind of the if we call it the traditional ski shop skills. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, uh, my my first first year at Snow and Rock, I was I was boot fitter, ski tuner, ski mounter. Uh, you know. We, we did everything. So ultimately it was a great process of learning. You know, back in the day, we also had all the certification from all the suppliers, you know, mm-hmm. so all the, all the um, you know, the brands did their um, seminars, certification, certification. Yeah. So that was all part of the, the process. So that was a really great um, first year of learning, learning extra skills and especially on the boot fitting side. Mm. And um, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, one of the things that uh, Snow Rock has, has been known for over the years is, um, 
and the boot fitting because obviously it's such a keen integral part to to the whole snow sport and, and um, enjoyment experience um so how did you was it kind of was that the groundwork in terms of some of the the uh, i'm going to say the ethos or the methodology because i think there's quite a quite a um um, not a standard, but there's quite a, a level of understanding. Is, is that kind of how, how it all started then? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, so Mike Brown, who was the founder, um, was, was very big on customer service. Mm -hmm. And so obviously one of the things that he developed and, and, and we continued for many, many years after his departure was this whole thing about customer satisfaction and a comfort guarantee. We had a comfort guarantee for ski boots and we were the first people in the UK to do that. And, and that really gave customers the confidence that if their boots didn't work or hurt, we'd sort them out. Mm. So that therefore it puts a lot more pressure and onus on you to do the right job. Because obviously you don't know, you don't prove yourself as a retailer until things go wrong. When things go right, it's great. But when things go horribly wrong, that's when you're, you're worth your your salt, so to speak. So I think that um, the whole thing about developing boot fitting um, really started in those early days. And, and we all had a thirst and a hunger for it um, mm -hmm. because obviously comfortable ski boots make your holiday, uncomfortable ski boots ruin it. So that was that was a that was a key attribute of the beginning of, a, mm -hmm. of the, the core of a Snow and Rocks ethos of really good customer service. I love that. And, and I think, you know, that's that, that's a, that's a, a, a thread that keeps going all the way through everything kind of that, that happens and everything that everything that everybody does, which is, which is really wonderful. Um, if we just take a step back, then you uh, talk about uh, obviously the early days and, and what was it? Um, what was the experience like in, in uh, say, in retail or the snow sport industry in the 80s and 90s in terms of the customers that were coming in? I mean, uh, in my head, I kind of have uh, pictures of, of of yuppies kind of coming in and, and wanting to go and spend lots and lots of money, go out and try try skiing, or whether it's for the first time or, or do that. What was that kind of like then? I think that one of the things that Snow Rock was considered, you know, back in the day, a very technical shop, as as I think it still is. Um, obviously, snow being the the snow sport side and rock being the climbing side and the outdoor. So. You know, really technical sports with where equipment is the key. Um, I, I guess one of the things that we aspired to was all levels of skier, not just um, you know the experts and tech heads, but people from you know beginner to expert, male to female, old, young. You know, there was no division. I think the key thing about all of the training that we did was, you know, never never try and pigeonhole the type of person that walks in the door because you don't know who they are what they are and I, I guess that's one of the great things in working in snow sport on this side of the world is you know New Zealand's got five million people you know the UK's got 65 million so it, you get a huge variety of different types of people coming through your door and as I said you know back in the day there was no internet so ultimately the knowledge that we had and the catalogs that we produced was a was a massive part of how we sold our product to our, our customers and consumers. Mm. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I think it, it's really important, isn't it? That um, I think it was um, one of the things that perhaps um, one of um, uh, the people previous on the podcast, uh, uh, Colin Newton had said that we, we said, you don't necessarily pigeonhole people, but the holiday starts when people walk in the door. And, and, and I think that's, you know, kind of alluding to what you're saying there is that it's, it's almost an all encompassing sort of, uh, of, of experience and trying to try do that. Yeah, I think I think I think that was the key thing is that um, 
the holiday. And that was what something that we start, said right from the beginning. You know, people, a lot of people live in London, you know, high stress jobs, dealing with traffic, parking issues. So when they came into the store, you know, especially in London, you could see some of them were, shall we say, hot behind the collar and we're always in a hurry. Mm. And the whole thing was to try and say, well, look, this process of fitting a pair of ski boots is not going to be five minutes. If you have only got five minutes, it's probably not the right time to do it. You know, you could be with us for an hour and a half. Mm. But what we tried to do is, you know, instill and engage with the customer. I mean, one of the things we also did, and this is, this is really key, is that we only employed snow sports enthusiasts to work in those departments because it's a bit like employing someone to sell cars that doesn't drive it doesn't work very well <laughs> so i think having skiers and snowboarders is part of your team and i think the other thing is also we had lots of female or women boot fitters as well in the in, in the stores which that's also a great thing because i think there is that stigma that it's a real macho world and i think having having you know um, both male and female, you know, staff in the stores and especially in the equipment department was a really, was a big thing. And I, we, we, we thought that was really important. One of the things that uh, we chatted about beforehand was uh, a, a bit of an attitude, which was kind of the work hard, play hard attitude. And I was wondering if you might be able to expand on that a little bit. I, well, I think the, the whole first year at Snow and Rock in 1985-86, when the store was open, 10 to 10, seven days a week. Um, we'd go out every night after after work. And, um, you know, it was crazy, you know. I guess we're young, we're in our 20s. Um, so the, the, the attitude was work hard and play harder. Um, and I, I think that season I, I worked, I actually, you know, after all the hours that I did per week, I literally left, finished the season with no cash. So that showed how much fun we had both... Mm -hmm. Um, at work and after work, I think I also bought so much kit, um, skis, ski, ski wear, ski gear, outdoor climbing gear. So, yeah, so it was it was great because obviously one of the things about, you know, the ski, the ski shops, uh, snow sport shops is that they are for, for enthusiasts. They're absolutely a, a treasure chest and everyone loves the beginning of the season when the new kit comes in. It's very exciting. Um, and the re release of the new kit. So, yeah, the attitude was really um, was really about work hard, um, but also have fun as well. And uh, I guess did did you uh, and many of your uh, colleagues of the time go out and do um, um, ski trips and like that? Because I guess you'd happen it towards the end of the uh, towards the end of the year as opposed to in the middle of the season. But is that um, is that kind of how this whole ski test started? Really, was it back then? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think. Um, Obviously, we had a from the beginning of the winter, so really from obviously September, well October through end of January, there was kind of a bit of a, a bit of a blackout on going going away because those were absolutely peak peak times for skiing. But generally, from the end of January onwards, um, there was time for you know staff because we obviously wanted all the staff to go out and go skiing. And in my first year. I'd only skied in Europe sort of once or twice before, and I was really keen. So, I had one trip during the um, during the season. I think that was probably in end of Jan or mid Feb, where I caught a, a coach out and did the old thirty six hour coach trip out to the the south of towards the south of France and skied in a small ski area called Les Or, um, which is amazing little ski ski area. Um, so that was my first experience, and then. 
um, at the end of the season when we'd kind of finished uh, the bulk of the sales, a, a group of us, and that was probably the first ever snow and rock ski test. So April, April 1986, we, we in a couple of um, battered old company cars, a Ford Escort and a Ford Cortina, I think they were, with a bunch of skis on the roof, um, we went to Maryville for our first first ever ski test. We, and that was that was great fun. And there was probably about 10 or 12 of us in total. Um, so that was kind of the first ski test. So there wasn't um, uh, from, from there wasn't really like a, I guess at that stage you were you testing product for next year or were you just were you just having a ski? Um, I think loosely speaking, it was a product test. Um, and it was all, of course, it was next year's skis. So that was great. The suppliers were really good about giving us product to test. Um, but I guess back in the day, it was not so many things like ski test cards and structured test slopes. It was <laughs> ski, ski everywhere and anywhere. Um, so, I like and of course, <laughs> yeah. And of course, it was my first experience to the Three Valleys, which was like, wow this place is huge you know having been used to growing up skiing on four rope toes uh you know with the hundreds of kilometers of pisted runs in the in the three stroke four valleys it was insane yeah it's uh i remember the first time i had the chance to go to that part of the world as well i was i was as you say it's kind of awestruck to kind of the the size of it um you mentioned about obviously the suppliers being really um really supportive and, and good with you and i think one of the things that is uh perhaps unique and perhaps uh, really special is, I'm gonna call it the dance, that, that, that uh, working with um, suppliers and building relationships that there's business side, then, the, then there's obviously the, uh, the personal side, but it's almost a, a lifestyle in terms of, of working in the snow sport industry. Um, and I wonder if you could speak to the fact of, you know, some of the relationships that you've kind of had over the years and, and how that kind of uh, supporting one another um, over the years in terms of business and in, um, uh, you know, and having fun. So, Obviously, we had um, many, many different brands that were, were suppliers to us. And you're right about dancing the dance. I mean, it was obviously the, the new product came out. We, we, we went to the big trade show, obviously the big trade show, um, which is um, the biggest in the world, actually. It was the, the ISPO trade show in, in Munich. And that was obviously end of January, beginning of February every year, where we saw all the ranges of new products. So that's where the negotiations and ranging process started. Um, and obviously the key thing for us is always to get the best deal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's all about margin, but it's also about a win-win ultimately. You know, we, we, we had loyal suppliers and we tried to support those suppliers um, by buying the product. And if they had a bad year with a certain product, you know, generally would work with them. Um, so we didn't sort of change brands just for the sake of it, it was because of innovation or new things coming along. So we gave a lot of support to the suppliers. They supported us and well with, with returns or adjusting models, cancellation. But, you know, the key thing is it, it was it was a, a relationships formed for business, but obviously we could afterwards go and have a beer, go skiing. I mean, back in those days, also all the suppliers held dealer trips in Europe, um, generally before ISPO, so we'd go product testing. Um, so we had the benefit of actually going out and testing the product with other dealers from other parts of the UK um, to fantastic locations all over the world. Yeah, it's a, and I think that's probably one of the one of the big USPs, isn't it, in terms of, of the brand is that um, 
uh, nothing was really sold unless it was tested or you put your foot in it or whatever it is. And, and, um, and that in turn, I guess, uh, provides more confidence, not only to the customer, but to the staff members. And uh, I mean, that was, I guess, one of the, the benefits of, this, of, this, of the ski test, isn't it? In terms of people being able to come in and, and try the product for themselves. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that um, one of the things that became our, uh, you know, was was absolutely uh, we stood by was we'd view the product at the trade shows. So in, in, in Munich and Germany and also at our own UK trade show, mm -hmm. but we would we'd give indications of our orders, but we would not complete our orders until such time as we'd actually tested the product. So the ski orders would not be not be confirmed until after the ski test. Now, in the early days, Stone Rock had we had our own ski test, and I think our um, our biggest our biggest ski test for staff we had a hundred staff on our own ski test, uh, and uh, someone said, "Well, how did the shop stay open?" Well, they were very much on skeleton staff, and we had um, two or three amazing years in St Anton where we had um, literally hired out a hotel and had all our staff and. Yeah, it was always a good day when you know everyone was back in one piece. And then you woke up in the morning and you knew everyone was still in one piece. Um, as you know, the staff was, uh, it was, it was an insane. So that really was the start of ski testing in the UK. And our biggest competitor, Alice Brigham at the time, also ran their own ski test. And it was really difficult for the suppliers um, trying to do both because, you know, undoubtedly we'd probably try and do them at the same time. Mm -hmm. Obviously we started first, of course, I'll just, <laughs> just get that in there. <laughs> they followed us. Um, and we, we eventually came down to the solution that we would provide all our IP, our, our testing stuff to give to the um, SIGB, which is the snow sports industry of Great Britain to conduct their own test. So mm -hmm. we agreed and, 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 and latterly so did Brigham's that we would stop running our own ski test and support the industry ski test. And that was really the birth of the, the industry ski test. I think the first ski test was in Pilar, if I remember rightly, um, in Italy um, and the, and the Aosta Valley. So that really, and, and what happened with that then, the ski test was brought back to early March, which then allowed um, our, our brand suppliers to get their orders into the factories much, much earlier, because obviously our ski test was always in April because we couldn't leave um, the stores um, until the season was done. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was kind of, that was the start of, you know, the whole industry, I guess, being more cohesive as a, as an industry. Mm. Uh, and there's, whilst it was competitive, there was probably a little bit more collaboration but the ski test was also good. It was like, tell the guys, keep the cards close close to your chest. Don't tell them what the hot stuff is. Uh, meanwhile, ask all the questions about what the hot stuff is. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. so. it's, it's, a, it's nice that you um, highlighted the, the cohesion of the industry. Um, speaking to a number of people as well and uh, suppliers and like that, that seems to be such a common theme that kind of comes up. Obviously, the ski industry is not the biggest of industries in the world, but the UK snow sport industry, um, but it, it it's the um, yeah the cohesion the the fact that people are are um, yeah work together to help you know every, people are competitors but they also do want to work together and you know um, yeah you don't uh, uh, <laughs> I would say don't don't poop on your own front door sort of thing um, so uh, taking a look at these different things so one of the things we mentioned beforehand as well was uh, and I'm gonna get I'm gonna get the pronunciation wrong anti anti 
Antipodean, anti Antipodean, or That's from yeah. Antipodes. So yeah, yeah, New Zealand, and we have to say Australia. Okay. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So ultimately, we we had a lot of staff. Obviously, John was a was a Kiwi, mm-hmm. um, and obviously myself. And then we had a number of other um, Kiwi staff. But what 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 we realised is that with with the snow sports industry once again the business is structured in such a way that snow and rock and a lot of the big snow sports stores made all their revenue over the winter months so really from october through march and then in the summer you know whilst a lot of them would mothball and and just still sell ski equipment we sold outdoor and it was a, a you know we realized in the in the summer period we had to reduce our staff levels mm-hmm. um because ultimately the business we had to you know the business made all its money in the winter and not not necessarily lost money but you know the whole idea was to break even over the summer so my first year in fact um in 86 i actually went back to new zealand and worked in queenstown in a ski okay. shop <laughs> um, and and as Jono came back and and didn't work he he was traveling around but we we just skied so, we skied in Queenstown most of the season. Um, uh, but as a result of that, we realised that we could employ Kiwis who would, with the Southern Hemisphere winter almost being the opposite to the Northern Hemisphere winter, mm-hmm. we could get the Kiwis to come over um, September, October at the end of their season and work through until April um, and then to go skiing and then get back to New Zealand for the start of the season in June mid to end of june so um and maybe catch some sun on the way back somewhere and that that idea worked incredibly well because obviously that the attitude of the kiwis and australians was was very much work hard play hard also customer service but we also realized that we could we could then reduce our staff numbers in the in the summer and then these guys would go back and and, and actually we went over on a number of trips to and we interviewed and brought staff over and what we did is we paid their half of their flight costs um, and always tried to find them a place to stay when they're over here. So we had many staff that were with us for, um, for, for two, three, four seasons, um, which was, which was fantastic. So, you know, if you, once again, it, it's about get it, giving people the knowledge. And I guess you spend a lot of time training um, in the first year to get people up to a level of knowledge and then the second and third years they pay, pay that knowledge back in spades and actually are able to train other people so that that connection um with with the southern hemisphere was was a really important part of our, of, of, of raising the technical level of knowledge within the business yeah it's um and, and um you know i sometimes think of um as boot fitting in, in the ski industry and it's kind of like a craft or an art that it, it you know you can't learn it all in, you can textbooks, I guess you could learn it all in, you know, a couple of weeks sort of thing, but it's, you have to see lots of feet. You have to see lots of, uh, interact with lots of people to be able to take that skill set and, and know how to apply it. And, uh, as you say, getting a few seasons worth of, of, I guess, a, a Northern hemisphere and a Southern hemisphere, uh, um, experience. Did you find that, uh, when you had those, uh, those staff members that there go back and forth, um, uh, <laughs> obviously they didn't necessarily get rid of trade secrets, but, um, you know, you kind of, you, you people came, uh, came to you and they had a, a certain skill set or certain knowledge base. They go away for a couple of months and then they came back. And uh, I guess, did you benefit from their uh, understanding in other parts of the world? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that um, we obviously had 
um, like your good self, we had Canadians working with us, Americans, Europeans, French. Um, but I think the key thing was always to make sure that people had always taught the game, but actually it wasn't until you started them working that you actually understand what their level of knowledge was. You know, for example, custom-made footbeds, mm -hmm. um, you know, stabilizing footbeds, foam injection, boot stretching, you know, all of that kind of stuff was is, is, is the areas that you'll know fairly quickly if someone is proficient or not. Mm. So once again, we, as a result, because the key thing when we started to grow the number of stores was consistency from one store to another, you know, so we actually produced a boot fitting protocol and a Bible, um, obviously, and, and for sure that disappeared and was taken to other parts of the world. Yeah. Um, but what, what, what it did do was bring out consistency. And that's that's one of the key things, especially is that if you're going into one store in London or one of our stores in Birmingham or Sheffield, the way the process was identical, you yeah. know, there yeah. was no deviation. And that was non-negotiable from a training perspective. You know, this is the way we do it. And it was our 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 USP, our protocol. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, and obviously, you know, standardization just makes makes it life so much easier. Um, you, you mentioned about um, the uh, the um, training manual going missing. Um, I love the story that you mentioned once about uh, I can't remember the training manual or the catalog. I think it was a catalog. They said you went to went when you're back in New Zealand at some point. You flicked through somebody's uh, somebody else's uh, magazine. And you saw all all your information there. In, uh, yeah, so it was, it was really interesting. Actually, I think it was. Um, 1990, if I remember, which was the launch of the Salomon Ski. So mm -hmm. that was, you know, and we'd done a, a big double page spread on the monocoque construction and the benefits of the Salomon Ski. Mm -hmm. um, and I was back in New Zealand, um, actually seeing my family, but also doing some recruitment. And I picked up the, I think it was one of the New Zealand ski magazines and I opened the middle and, and lo and behold, it was our double page spread from our catalogue it had just literally been lifted it was the copy was dreadful because it looked like it had been photocopied um and it was in the new zealand <laughs> ski magazine so i immediately rang up the the distributor of um salomon in new zealand whose name was Werner honey i think he was swiss and i said what are you doing you've just completely plagiarized our catalogue so i think he ended up providing us with a few sets of skis or something as compensation but um yeah, that was that was kind of that was amazing actually to see that you know the Salomon distributor of New Zealand had just copied our our, <laughs> our Salomon ski concept pages. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I think if I recall correctly, you talked about the Salomon Force Four series. Is that the one you're referring to? Well, that the Four series that was. I mean, obviously that wasn't the first year because obviously mm -hmm. the um, the first year was just the orange. Um, oh, it, yeah. The, 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 gosh, the 1S, 2S, and 3S, which was the 1S was the GS, the 2S was the kind of soft slalom, and the 3S was the slalom. And then obviously the Force 9 series yeah. came out, which were all blue, if I remember yeah. rightly. Yeah. They came out next year or the year after, and they were fantastic. They were so successful. Yeah, because uh, there's a, um, chatting to um, Eric Davies, who's uh, obviously Salomon, I think he had a parent, I think he had a, um, a hand in naming that, because he had a picture of himself with the old ski and the new ski, and he, apparently there's a there's a story there about that, which perhaps you can do. Hook up with yeah, I think I think the, the Brits had quite a part, and um, obviously um, 
you know, a lot of the, the, the translation stuff for Salomon, because obviously, you know, Salomon being French, whilst they all speak English, the understanding and some of the wording and some of the stuff that they've used over the years has been quite suspect. So I think with anything big, they, they, they did like someone that, you know, thought in English to validate their, their names, shall we say. It's brilliant. Um, so you obviously we talked a little bit about training. We talked about kind of uh, encouraging staff and, and kind of uh, uh, training staff in, in store as well. Um, but from your perspective, as you've kind of gone through your career, um, were there anybody, any any people or groups of people that um, that helped you or your mentors or anything like that in, in your career? Um, I think that uh, obviously Mike Brown, who was the was the founder of and, and started Stone Rock, was was an, an incredible um, mentor for many ways, especially on the business side. He was incredibly astute. And obviously when I became a buyer, because obviously initially I was a, you know, shop, shop floor staff, um, Mike gave me all the training and, and, and the path to negotiation. So he was, he was a, he was a great mentor and, and John Carmichael for, for many ways, because he was a, a mate, he was a few years older than me, um, gave me a lot of knowledge. And then one of my other colleagues, Sharon Campbell and, um, who was the fashion director for many, many years, um, you know, was there actually, she's probably the longest serving member of Stone Rock because she <laughs> stayed long after I left and, and also Mike had gone. Um, so they were, they were a really important part and we were, we were a great team. Um, you know, eventually um, the three of us became directors of the, of the company, which was um, in the, in the early nineties. And then obviously there's a few transitions in terms of the, the company itself. I think, um, when you, uh, the because it went through a, a, a few um, uh, management buyouts, etc. And uh, I mean, just briefly, did you want to um, just give any highlights? Any highlights of that? Yeah. So I guess that um, so the first period. So Snowrock was founded in 1982. Mm -hmm. So Mike founded that. Um, I think Sharon joined the business in 1983 um, as clothing buyer and later fashion director. Mm -hmm. um, then John and I joined um, in '85. Um, Viren, our finance director, I think he was in the sort of around 83-ish as well. Mm -hmm. And we kind of stayed with the business um, right through. Um, Mike, obviously many people know him and some don't, had a very serious accident in um, 93 where mm -hmm. he, skiing, we're all skiing together, um, he um, broke his back and was paralysed from the waist down. So... Mm -hmm. um, that was a, a you know big blow to the company, but the guy just you know literally a few months later came out of hospital, drove himself out of hospital and on his converted car, and um, you know continued to run the business. So he made a decision in the in the early two thousands that it was probably time for him to move on. You know he wanted to go and um, find other challenges and um, and see the world, um, and which to which he did. So in two thousand and three. Um, we sold the business um, to um, Andrew Andrew Brownsword, who was a um, a high high net worth individual, but had a real passion for snow sport and and good brands. Mm -hmm. um, and Sharon and Jono and Vern all stayed on, but they they um, decided that they did not want to have any. Um, equity involvement in the business and and then after a couple of years Jono moved on and, and moved to France um Viren um retired as finance director and Sharon stayed on um as as fashion director 
So from that period of 2003 to 2010, um, I became chief executive of the business and we had a massive period of growth. Mm -hmm. um, grew a lot of um, a number of stores. I think we grew from half a dozen to gosh, over 20. Um, we also bought the brand Cycle Surgery to mm -hmm. um, help uh, change the uh, seasonality of our business. And also in 2010, we bought Runner's Need. So mm -hmm. we in fact had you know, not just one business, but now three businesses, which really helped to develop and grow the brand. Um, so that period was uh, incredibly fun. I mean, I have to say that the early, the early days, it was kind of like the Wild West, you know, health and safety was there, but it didn't rule our lives. Um, and, you know, we grew the business and had a lot of fun. And I think one of the things I would say was that we were passionate about the sports, um, and then business became the passion as well. And I think we were so lucky that actually we loved the sport so much that actually going to work wasn't like going to work at all. <laughs> so I think that was, for me, um, those, those early years, was it, it was insanely good fun. It was insanely challenging, hard work, but just really, really great fun. And, and we made great friendships and great relationships. So that was, that was good. And then the, the second phase, the sort of, should we say, grown up phase, <laughs> when, when, I, um, when I took over running the business, it was, it was still a lot of fun, but it, it was, a, I guess, a, a slightly different set of objectives. You know, the skiing was still absolutely in, in the outdoor, but all the other sports were still a passion, but it was being a professional retailer. Um, and, and, and also the whole thing about staff training in all of those areas, um, became even more important mm -hmm. so the process for what the way we ran our business in the early days became really entrenched in the way we ran our business moving forward mm -hmm. um, and one of the great things I would say um, was that we always had the strategy uh, to promote from within mm -hmm. you know if someone understood our brand and we could promote with from, from within we would always do that because you got the loyalty and it also showed other people joining the business that there was a future for them that because yeah. retail can be seen as oh, I'm just the shop I'm just shop staff but actually if people could see that they could that they could go from shop floor staff to management to director then people could see a pathway and I think that was great um, and then in 2010 um, Andrew Brownsword made a decision that he wished to sell the business um, which, which, which was understandable. Um, we'd grown to quite a reasonably large size at that stage. I think we, we were turning over in excess of 50 million as a group. So, you know, we'd grown the business quite a bit from the early days. Um, so I made a decision with the, the group of management below um, to do a management buyout, which we did with a, a number of um, staff, once again, that had grown up through the business. Um, and we did a management buyout, which concluded in September 2010, I believe. Um, and it was it was the right thing to do at the time. Um, I guess one of the things I realise now is that um, it's very different when you're when you've got private equity investment from the privately owned. So the dynamic of the business changed quite a bit. And whilst I, I enjoyed the period, it was a very different period in my my life. And I spend spent much more time driving spreadsheets than I did actually running the business. And I, and in the end, 
I made the decision it was probably right for me to move on. Um, so in um, November, end of November, 2012, I departed. So, you know, I was with the business 27 years, um, came for six, came to, came to the UK for six months and, and uh, yeah, um, stayed for 27. So <laughs> Brilliant. great, a great journey uh, and a brand that was, um, you know, you know, s- still a great brand and great to be part of. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I love that. Thank you very much for, for sharing that. And um, I mean, you've obviously, had, you, you, you continue to have a very successful career in many different things that you're, you're involved with. Um, but, uh, and I would say, uh, I would put my hand up and say that I think you're, you're a people person, but I'm going to flip it around and say, what do you think has been your, what is your specialist skill? What is, what is it? Um, what's the one thing that you feel you're very good at in, uh, in terms of, Either not say running running business, but um, building a, such a, a successful team and brand. So I think I think the key thing is um, to show people that you actually care. That's mm-hmm. one thing. I think that's quite important. That you know, no matter you know, no matter where you are in the business, whether you work in the warehouse or whether you're a director, you know, everyone has value. Mm-hmm. And and I would always say to any member of staff is. No one should be proud, too proud to pick up and do any of themselves, sweep the floor, run the business, whatever. It doesn't matter, you know. And I think showing to people that you were happy to roll your sleeves up and get on was was whilst it was an important part of the ethos of the business. Um, we also had a, you know, a reasonably as, as, as management of the business, a reasonably open door policy. And, you know, if someone wanted to come and talk to you, within reason you'd be very happy to see them but I also said to people if you've got a problem don't come to me with a problem come to me with a solution as well and actually ask people to to think about okay something's not working I'm not being paid enough or why aren't you being paid enough or 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 this is wrong well how are you going to solve it so I think just not putting the onus on people to have a have a moan about something but actually come to you with a solution um, and I think that that does make people realize that okay not everything can be changed not everything can be fixed but we'll always look at stuff yeah that's 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 fair enough and um yeah i think that being able to have a um a conversation and and i think the other thing especially when you have so many locations and and so many different uh fascias and and, and facets to look after uh as you say perhaps not coming to to you with a moan but coming up with a possible solution it may not be the the ultimate solution but it puts the uh a path in place for progress uh, to, to solve solve the problem. Um, so uh, one of the questions which uh, when I mentioned that you're you're going to be coming on board here, a lot of people have asked is um, what is uh, what is your vision or, or thoughts on future of retail? So, I mean, ultimately, this has been this last year has been devastating mm. for for retail. Um, you know, many stores have been closed for months. Mm. Um, I think what 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 has happened is that the the COVID nineteen pandemic has has definitely expediated what was already going to happen, and we I think we all realise now that online business is is here to stay and where many people will go um, as their first port of call. However, one of the things you can't do online is you can't feel and touch. And you can't have 
conversations face-to-face with people that have a passion for the sport, knowledge, and can recommend great product. Mm -hmm. So I think specialist retail is more important than ever. And I think Mm -hmm. it's a USP that will help people to survive. Mm -hmm. I think the answer is that many retailers won't need as many locations as they used to have. Mm -hmm. Um, However, key locations with great staff, great product and great service, I believe are here to stay. And I think that service, you know, it's all about service, knowledge and experience. And that for me is, and I I believe there's a great future in specialist retail and whatever area, if if you offer the right level of service. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree. I think it's, it's, uh, it's almost, it's gone almost um, 180 degrees or 360, depending on which you want to look at that. It's come back to actually having, um, such a a reason to get out a reason to go to a location and it's almost i don't want to say a one-stop shop but it's almost like you're so wowed you know i keep having visions in my head of like going to nike town or going to um i know harris is probably slightly different but it's almost the case that you have you're going there because it's so it's so incredibly different and special and that's the reason why you get it because yeah you can get everything you want right now online <laughs> yeah and i think one of the things that we also did is we were one of the in the snow sports industry and outdoor industry, we were one of the people that really uh, championed the price match guarantee. Mm-hmm. So that if you if you found something cheaper, identical yeah. online or in store, we would match the price on spot. So yeah. then there was no reason for people um, not to purchase when they came in. Yeah, and that was always a challenge. If someone's left without purchasing, have you failed mm. your job? Yeah. I'd always pose that to staff. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably a, uh, if you, you know, and um, probably stings the first couple of times to get that that challenge. But then obviously people kind of get to the point where they probably learn and move on and grow for the, for the, for the next time. Um, so uh, a couple other questions here for you, just uh, some fun bits. Um, so obviously you've had the, the chance to ski around the world. You've had a chance to ski with uh, a plethora of, of, of people. And, um, but if you were to take a, take a, uh, have a, a double chairlift ride, uh, somewhere uh, in and have a conversation with uh, with somebody. Is there anybody in particular that uh, that jumps to mind that you'd perhaps like to pick the brain or or to have a have a chat with? I I, I thought about this, Phil, because I, I knew you were going to ask me this question, and 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 I've been very lucky over the years to ski with so many fantastic celebrities um, mm-hmm. or sportsmen, world champion um, from from the ski industry from all over the world. So I thought, well, could it be one of those people? Um, and the answer is, well, no, because I've actually done that anyway, not without gloating. I'm sorry, apologies. Um, so I guess one of the things, one of the musicians that I, I, I love and still listen to his music mm-hmm. is Mark, Mark Knopfler um, from Dire Straits. I listen to his music all the time when I'm cycling or running or, um, or even skiing. So I would love to have a conversation with him because I think his guitar stuff is just insane. Um, and I remember the days in the earlier in the mid eighties when we were shop fitting in the summer, his music was always played at Mac nine at three or four <laughs> in the morning when we had a job to finish. So I guess that was a, yeah, um, probably a, a big, uh, uh, it would be great to have a chairlift ride with him. Love it. Um, in this, uh, in this current environment we're day to day right now, obviously with say, many different challenges, um, who inspires you to develop? Who inspires you to get better right now? So um, I guess in my sort of twilight of my, my 
business business life i've thought you know you know long long and hard about that i mean i really i'd really admire um steve jobs um mm -hmm. i think he built um a, an incredible brand and sadly he's no longer with us um but he was ruthless um mm -hmm. and i think in business um you don't have to be ruthless to, to be successful mm -hmm. you know you can also be empathetic as well um and successful um so I, I kind of looked at the, the, the people that in, inspire me who have done um, great things in sport, okay, because I'm, I'm passionate about sport. I think Roger Federer is one of my absolute idols. Um, as a, a, a guy in his late 30s is still able to, to mix it with the best. And, and watching his career, I've always, you know, he's a beautiful tennis player. Um, Tiger Woods, as a, as a golfer, I'm a a keen but fairly average golfer um not not my real chosen sport i guess but i've it's a great challenge and i just the way the guys come back from injury to um um perform the way um he has um and let's just hope after his latest accident he's able to come back again yeah. um so those those people are um i kind of they inspire me um and then i i look at um, there's a couple of other people that have really inspired me. Sorry, I'm, I've got a long list here. Um, no, that's fine. There's um, a guy by the name of um, Joe Simpson, the climber. Um, and many people know that um, from the book or the movie Touching the Void, mm -hmm. who was a mountaineer who had a, 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 an incredible accident um, or climbing accident after climbing in the Peruvian and, and was left for dead and managed to crawl out with a broken leg. And his... Um, will to survive was just something phenomenal mm -hmm. so I think you know for, for me he he inspires me as you know never give up you know mm -hmm. come over here and I'll bite your kneecaps off but I'm I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna crawl out and the guy survived yeah. and I so that, that's a that's a great book and a great story and that that incredibly that that inspired me immensely mm -hmm. so that, those are kind of people that inspired me for both through business and sport and um yeah Oh, I like that. Yeah, the, um, the uh, I mean, obviously that's a, that's a that's a great list. It's okay. You don't. I mean, I don't think most people are inspired by one person. So it's it's kind of like um, uh, you know, getting lots of people around. It's like having the, the dinner table conversation. Who would you have at your dinner table? Yeah, well, there you go. There's my list. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so I've got just a few questions from people who are interested uh, about you. Uh, Amon Momin from uh, Momentum City Ski. Uh, he wanted to know if you had to choose only one, if it was skiing, fast cars, cycling, golf, or tennis, which would you choose? Ah, that's difficult. Um, I love them all. Um, I love fast cars. I love, I love all those sports. But I guess it's still um, skiing powder, mm -hmm. chest deep powder with your mates, sun shining. A beer, beer on the terrace afterwards has still got to be probably my number one. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, I mean, and see, the good thing about, uh, say, somebody, say, my stature is uh, it's like a heavy frost. And, and uh, most people, uh, yeah, that's chest. I'm not, anyway. I'm, not, I'm not much different from you know that. <laughs> um, so, um, Dave Sawyer Parker, I want to know what your most exciting moment was uh, on the mountains, if, you, if you've had one. Most exciting moment. I think um, probably two years ago um, when we went skiing in Hakuba in Japan, we we went skiing and, it, and 
as many people know, it dumps in Japan like there's no tomorrow. And I have never skied in snow so deep. When you stopped, it was actually over your... Once again, we're not of high stature, Phil. But when we stopped, it was over your head. It was insane. And and literally, you, you couldn't see where you were turning. You had to literally extend yourself out of the snow to see where your next turn would be. And if you went down, you had to have someone come and dig you out. So you had to ski in twos. It was absolutely insane. And that was one... And we had a fantastic... Um, so that was in 2019 and it was just the snow was insane and it was feather light but it was so that that's probably my most memorable day of um of of skiing in the mountains oh love it that just sounds that just sounds amazing i just oh i'm getting excited to think about that mind you on the same side i have visions of those those the looney tunes the bugs bunny cartoons you know it kind of you, you just see the earth moving and kind of everything underneath. well it was like it was like that <laughs> for sure I've got um, pictures to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you, you can uh, ping them through. We can put uh, put them up on, online. Um, Eric, last question from uh, from from people. Um, Eric Davies asked, "What is the uh, next out there snow challenge, Dion style?" Well, I'm sort of late fifties now, so um, all the extreme stuff that we wanted to do when we were younger is probably past its sell by date, so to speak. I mean, I've probably <laughs> I've got. I've got some locations on my bucket list that I'd like to, um, to go. I'd love to, I'd love to go to ski in Halley ski in Alaska. I think that's still something I'm keen to do. And and, and Valdez, I think that's something that uh, that's to Halley. Um, I'd I'd like to go to ski in the Caucasus in Russia, and I'd probably like to try and go to Kashmir and in India. So those are three places um, kind of on my list. Whether I achieve them in this lifetime, I don't know. But um, well, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, you can go off and buy a lottery ticket tonight. I mean, I'm sure that's, uh... <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> cool. So, um, as we uh, before I ask these final three questions, um, one of the just general thing people asked, um, so what sort of things are you up to in this day and age in terms of things? Obviously, you're not necessarily um, with with Snow Rock per se anymore, but you're still in the in the industry to a certain extent. So, yeah, so I'm doing I'm doing a little bit of um, business consultancy with um, CDAS in France, um, Francois Duviard, who um, is obviously was a, a supplier and is still a supplier of Snow Rock, has become a great friend, and so I've been doing some work with them on staff training and and, and you know some of the stuff that we did when we were at Snow Rock. So. Um, not much has happened in the last year, um, obviously because of um, because of COVID. But I'm sure that will um, fire back up, and that's kind of nice to have a still have a, a hand in the snow sports industry, oh, um, the well, snow sports and outdoor. Um, so that's kind of um, my limit to what's going on in the snow sports mm-hmm. industry. Um, for my sins, we've got a small property business now, which we. Mm-hmm rent out um high-end accommodation to young professionals so that's something my my wife and i do together um giving us time to go cycling play tennis play golf um yeah so uh yeah looking forward to being able to get out and do all that sort of stuff again after this (laughs) this last period of lockdown fingers crossed it's over soon yeah so my final three questions are uh, if people had to take away a sentence or a phrase that encapsulated the snow and rock brand essence what do you think that is? So I thought about this actually, because ultimately Snow Rock's about three things. And I think it's great people, great brands, great service. 
that's kind of for me encapsulated the way we want to see snow and rock love it yeah um what do you want your snow sport legacy to be um someone who is part of growing a great brand um you know and 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 enjoying it at the same time and making you know lifelong friends in the industry who we are you know still in touch with i think that's that's an important part for me yeah i would definitely think that uh, definitely done that and uh who do you think a legend is and why um someone who's remembered for what they achieved but also the way they achieved it i kind of reiterated that before as i don't mm. think you need to you know, walk over broken glass to do it. I think you can do many things in many different ways, but there's a there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way to do things. But I think if you can um, look back at it and be proud of what you did, that you've actually worked with others to achieve rather than walk all over others to achieve, I think that's a, an important thing, an important legacy to leave. Brilliant. Love it. I think it's great. Well, um, thank you so much for your time uh, today and uh, for uh, you know sharing some insights and some some stories and some uh, some history. I appreciate it and uh, your your visions uh, for, for the future of retail as well as you know uh, some of the some of the fun stuff as well. So greatly appreciate it. Um, if people want to know more about you or if they want to get in touch or anything like that, um, do you have a any way for people to, to reach out? Well, I'm on Facebook. Mm -hmm. not incredibly active um as well as um uh, instagram mm -hmm. um and you know if, if the, in, and also on linkedin so mm -hmm. um yeah i guess there's uh, three th a couple of ways for people to get hold of me if they've got any questions or want to uh engage oh brilliant love it well thank you again so much for all your time really appreciate it and uh thank you again for your insights and hopefully you can have yourself a uh, a nice afternoon uh you can relax and um you go for a walk or cycle or something like that. Who yeah, knows? that's right. Yeah, cheers, Phil. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dion, and uh, I'm sure we'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Right. Cheers. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Legends of the Brand. Hope you enjoyed yourself. Listen, drop us an email at info at legendsofthebrand.com. That's info at legendsofthebrand.com if you'd like to reach out and get in touch. And make sure to check out the show notes also at all the W's at legendsofthebrand.com. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye.